Information discussed in this podcast may be sensitive in nature to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Jennifer Cahill Shadel was in the middle of a terrible divorce in 2014. It was almost over, but it was a hard time for Jennifer. She didn't initially want the divorce, and her biggest struggle was being away from her kids for any length of time. It was such a rough time for Jennifer that in November of 2013, she moved from her home in State College, Pennsylvania, to go live with her mother in Orwigsburg. Her mother has said that she needed to get out. The situation at home was not good. But by April of 2014, she could no longer stand being so far away from her children. Her mom would take her back to State College. Her divorce would be final soon, and the order for spousal support for Jennifer was $5,000 a month. Certainly, her husband, Sean, wasn't happy about it, but I think everyone wanted the divorce to be over. On May 15th, 2014, Jennifer went to Walmart, a tanning salon, and possibly a Mexican restaurant. Jennifer was never seen or heard from again. Where is Jennifer Cahill Shadle? She would call me, I would call her. Then it got to be Saturday and Sunday, and I left more messages. Monday, I called their house. They're going through a divorce. He starts paying her $5,000 a month, and all of a sudden, she becomes missing. Terrifies me to think that uh, uh, Jenny can vanish from a community and never be seen again. Hello, and welcome back to the Where Are They podcast. This episode is about a 48-year-old mother of three who vanished during the midst of a nasty divorce. But there are actually many possibilities here, and the story about what was happening in Jennifer's life at the time in the town of State College, Pennsylvania, is pretty mysterious. Before we jump into the story of Jennifer Cahill Shadel, I want to welcome our newest Patreon member, Misty R. from Washington State. Thank you so much for supporting our show, our mission, and our charity partners. If you have any case suggestions for us, please hit us up on social media or send me an email anytime at canwefindthem at gmail.com. Our show partner for this episode is the Fetch app a free app that I personally use every day. We'll hear more on them in a bit. The case of Jennifer Cahill Shadel is a baffling one. I mean, a lot of the ones we cover are, in that they are unsolved, of course, but sometimes there seems to be an obvious answer. Sometimes we know, even if it can't be proven. 
A lot of people think there is an obvious answer here. And while I think that answer is a possibility, there are some others that might be just as likely when you examine all the evidence. Who is Jennifer Cahill Shadle? Jennifer Cahill was born January 6, 1966. Her parents, Johanna and Ed, describe their daughter as fun-loving, charismatic, very interested in art and film, and also took very good care of herself physically. When Jennifer met Sean Shadle, Jennifer was very young. She was instantly attracted to his confidence, his ambition, and his good looks. Jennifer's family does recall that they felt that Jennifer changed after she had met Sean. Not necessarily for the better. She had low self-esteem, and at one point there was some type of family argument that involved Sean. And Jennifer would take Sean's side over her own family's. Now that could be pertinent information to her case, or it might not be. She was young. She was 20. And without knowing the specifics of that situation, it's hard to pass judgment as an outsider. At 21 years old, Jennifer would marry Sean. They lived in State College, Pennsylvania, and did pretty well for themselves financially. I believe Sean worked in the insurance industry and built up quite a reputation in the area. He was well-known and either well-liked or completely disliked. It seems there are two different sides if you ask people in and around State College. State College is located in the center of the state of Pennsylvania. It's the home of Penn State University and has a population of just over 42,000. Sean was, possibly still is, well-connected in the community. Jennifer, however, began to have some struggles with alcohol during their marriage. At one point, she did join AA and began weekly therapy, and everyone said she was doing much better. It was also said that Sean wasn't supportive of her at all. In fact, on her one-year anniversary of AA, Sean gave Jennifer a bottle of alcohol to celebrate. In 2013, after 27 years of marriage, Sean filed for divorce. Jennifer originally didn't want the divorce and would fight it in the beginning. And after some time, understandably so, the stress of the divorce was getting to Jennifer. And she decided to go home and live with her mother for a while in Orwigsburg, Pennsylvania. Orwigsburg is about a two and a half hour drive from State College. Not necessarily that close, but Jennifer had to get away. Living with her mother, Jennifer got a job at an insurance agency. But in April of 2014, Jennifer couldn't stand being away from her three children any longer, and her mom drove her back to State College. Jennifer didn't have a car of her own, and for the next few weeks, Jennifer stayed with friends and in low-budget hotels. She wanted to find an apartment and settle down on her own, but was working to save up the money to do so. At the same time as divorce negotiations were starting to wrap up, the judge in the case ordered Sean to pay Jennifer a monthly spousal support payment of $5,000 per month. This would certainly help her start over and get a place of her own. She began to look for apartments or places to rent. 
Friends of Jennifer's said she was feeling better about the future as she was coming to terms with the divorce. She would have some financial resources very soon, and things were just looking better. The Disappearance On May 15, 2014, Jennifer went to run some errands. She was back staying at a local hotel. She often bounced between the roadway and the Quality Inn in State College, and she either used taxis or just walked to get where she needed to go. She did speak to her family that afternoon on the phone talking about her future plans and how she was feeling more positive about finding a place and starting over. And Jennifer seemed to be having a good day. The next day, however, Jennifer's mother couldn't reach her at the hotel. It seemed at some point Jennifer had lost her cell phone and had limited ways to communicate. When the entire day went by and Johanna hadn't heard from her daughter, she knew something was wrong. Then another day went by and there was still no word from Jennifer. Johanna finally contacted Jennifer's oldest daughter, but she said she hadn't heard from her mom either. By May 20th, Jennifer's mom was in panic mode and called the local police in State College. Now, State College is an interesting area, and by Pennsylvania guidelines, it's actually referred to as a borough. There are several other areas kind of within the greater State College area that are technically their own little towns. Since Jennifer was last known to be in the area of Ferguson, it was the Ferguson police that took the call. But the Ferguson police weren't interested. The search. First of all, Jennifer, at 48 years old, didn't need to answer to anyone. Jennifer was also going through a stressful time. Maybe she just needed to get away. When police asked Sean where he thought Jennifer might have gone, he shrugged and said, probably some rehab somewhere. Jennifer's family said there's no way she would go to rehab without telling them. She spoke to her mom daily and her daughters. Why wouldn't she just tell them if she were going to go to a rehab center? Law enforcement refused to look into it any further as Jennifer was an adult. Plus, Sean, being well-known and well-connected within the community, told police that Jennifer likely just took off on her own, either to rehab or just wanted to leave, and police knew Sean well enough to take him at his word. Immediately, Jennifer's family began calling investigators and using social media to find her, and the battles would begin. The family seriously questioned Sean. I mean, the timing is bad. They're going through a nasty divorce. He's just ordered to pay her $5,000. And then Jennifer goes missing. So many, many people stood up for Sean, but there were many people that did not. Even Sean's sister came forward to say that she thought Sean knew more than he was saying and that he wasn't the stand-up citizen that some thought he was. Eventually, surveillance footage from the Walmart on North Atherton Street in Ferguson State College was analyzed, and Jennifer is seen leaving Walmart at 4.51 p.m. by herself on May 15th. I'm curious what led them to check the Walmart surveillance footage in the first place and how to narrow it down to a day and time, but I'm guessing someone reported seeing her there or it was based on a timeline from when she had spoken to her family earlier that day. But things get weird. 
police do start kind of looking for Jennifer as a missing person, but she isn't yet entered officially as a missing person in the system. Investigators weren't quite ready to go that far yet. She was reported as being last seen on Walmart surveillance at 4.51 p.m., and it was also said that she didn't have her phone or her wallet with her. I know she had reportedly lost her phone earlier, but I wonder why she didn't have a wallet, and I wonder if she had lost that when she lost her phone. It was also noted that Jennifer was seen in Walmart just before exiting, borrowing one of the clerk's phones at the customer service desk. And this is likely because she didn't have her own cell phone. But no one thought to talk to or ask that clerk about her interaction with Jennifer at all. In fact, to date, that clerk has never been questioned. So the reports do state that she had lost her phone. And there was also a note that came up later that she had lost her credit card and her daughter and ex-husband were supposed to be bringing her another one. It was also said that she didn't have any cash on her, but I wonder how we know that. Finally, one month later, in June, police finally enter Jennifer Cahill Shadel into their missing person database. Meanwhile, the family goes to get Jennifer's belongings from the hotel and is told by hotel staff there that they had been trying to reach Sean For several days since the room had essentially been abandoned, Sean had been ignoring those calls. People come forward with claims of Sean's abuse and, of course, his motive for making his wife disappear. And as I mentioned before, based on the timing of it all, it doesn't look good for Sean. He was just about to have to start paying her $5,000 a month in spousal support payments and he wasn't happy about it. Their children were living with him and fully supported their dad, however. Investigators did bring Sean in for questioning, and they did give him a lie detector test, which they ruled inconclusive. Some of Jennifer's family members and friends say that he manipulated the results of that test by smoking a lot of marijuana just before the exam. But I don't know how they know this, or if it's even true, and if it was suspected, why they just didn't try to retest him at a later date, unless he refused. I don't know, this is really a case of a he said, she said, with a lot of these details. The police would eventually also take search dogs trained in cadaver and human remains detection to search Sean's home and property, but nothing was found. While it didn't look good for Sean on the outside, there was absolutely no evidence pointing that he had anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance. Several months go by and the family, not getting the response they want from the local police, hires a private investigator who immediately uncovers some new information. For a while, the last known sighting of Jennifer was that Walmart surveillance footage, 4.51 p.m. on May 15th, 2014. But soon, the PI learns that she was also seen a couple hours later at a tanning salon in the same shopping plaza. And then, a couple hours after that, at the Don Patron Mexican restaurant, also in the same area. The family reported those findings to law enforcement. 
Now, Sean and the children stayed out of the media spotlight during all of this, but a family member was able to talk to Jennifer and Sean's daughter. She said that the daughter knew about these later sightings of her mother, but they had decided not to report that to the police because it wasn't important. Unfortunately, a lot like the case I covered last week, actually, there is a significant divide between family members here. There was a Facebook page set up by the family for Jennifer, and you can read a lot of the back and forth discussions there, arguments between family members, friends, and community members. It seems there are two very distinct sides. One year after Jennifer disappeared, the family fought to get the FBI involved. They felt the FBI could offer some different resources and might bring a fresh perspective to the case. But the local police refused to involve them. The family went directly to the FBI themselves, who did agree that they would take a look at the case, but said the only way they would be able to do that is if they were invited to assist by the local police, which, of course, they weren't doing. A family member wrote a direct email and a plea to Diana Conrad, who was the chief of police for the Ferguson Department at the time. They were begging for them to get the FBI involved. Here is part of the response that was given from Diana Conrad to that email. This is taken from an online blog, the Happy Valley Citizen blog, which does have a good amount of information regarding Jennifer Cahill Shadle. So here is the response from Diana Conrad. This case is still active and therefore we cannot share all information, but we have met and provided information to the family via their designated representatives, as I'm sure you are aware on many occasions. Some of the statements in your email do not accurately reflect the totality of the information provided to the police, are not substantiated, and are misunderstandings. That is a segment from the response that... Chief Conrad sent back to the family. So the family responded by sending more emails and were subsequently ignored. They never got an answer beyond that. The family has also said that officers were disrespectful to them and rude, and some of them believe it is because of their close relationship with Sean. The Ferguson Police Department has denied that and said they have done everything they can and are doing the best that they can. And they do understand and realize that it's a very emotional time for the family. Interestingly, we also learn about a year after Jennifer's disappearance that Sean tells people that someone tried to file a health insurance claim on Jennifer's health insurance. And they tried three times. He told people this, telling them that because of that, he thought Jennifer was alive somewhere and living elsewhere in the country. But there has been no activity on her social security number, bank accounts, or anything else to show that she is out there. Anything except these random insurance claims. So, of course, Jennifer's friends and families begged authorities to track these claims, feeling that maybe it is Jennifer or maybe it's a fraud attempt or a stolen identity attempt. But police refused to look into it further. And this completely baffled the family because even if they believed that it wasn't Jennifer, then you're looking at a case of fraud. 
the family hired another private investigator to track this claim, which they did. They discovered the IP address that it came from, which looked to be from New Jersey, but they were unable to learn any more. So all of these additional findings were discovered by private investigators that the family had to pay for out of pocket simply because no one else would investigate. Sean maintains that Jennifer must be alive and it had to be her. But many also point out that Sean, being an insurance agent, knew the ins and outs of the business more than others and felt that this lead might have been a red herring to throw suspicion off of him and help convince people that he is innocent. I know we've been talking a lot about Sean, but there was another incident that happened a couple of weeks before Jennifer went missing that also has people wondering. Jennifer had been hanging out at the Don Patron Mexican restaurant with four men. On this particular night, she paid the tab almost $200, and investigators have asked those men to come forward and speak to them about Jennifer, what she might have said, what her demeanor was that night, anything they can learn about who these guys were. But these men never came forward. And it got me to thinking, she was staying at some lower budget hotels in the area. Could she have met someone or a group of people traveling for work while there? Possibly someone not even from the area at all? Before we talk more about the possibilities in Jennifer's case, let's have a quick word from today's show partner, Fetch. The Fetch Rewards app is a no-brainer, an app that rewards you for doing the shopping you already do. Simply download the free app, scan your everyday receipts, and earn points that you can redeem for gift cards. You can scan grocery store, restaurant, even hardware store receipts. And the best part, you can also set up to automatically scan e-receipts that come into your email. What kind of gift cards can you earn? Airline gift cards, Starbucks cards, Airbnb, Amazon, retail stores like Nike, Adidas, and Cabela's, and even restaurants like Dave & Buster's, Chili's, and IHOP, just to name a few. Or use your points for a gift card for services like Hulu Plus or Instacart. It's super easy, folks, and if you use our link in the notes, you will receive up to 4,000 bonus points just for downloading the app today and scanning your first receipt. Remember, supporting our partners helps support the show. And really, who doesn't love free money? Again, you'll find the link in our show notes. So I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that a lot of people think they know what happened. Of course, Sean, being the soon-to-be ex-husband that was about to have to pay Jennifer $5,000 a month, he seemed to have motive. Some people said he had a history, but... There are some other possibilities here, too, based on Jennifer's actions those days before her disappearance and her history. The theories. Theory number one, Sean Shadel. Let's discuss him first because he seems to be the first thought most people have. He definitely had a motive and was possibly well enough connected to keep law enforcement off his back. We never really learned what his alibi is either. That's not saying that he doesn't have one. It just hasn't been made public. 
There are some relatives that stand by him, including all the children. Laura Shadel, Jennifer and Sean's daughter, says her dad has been unfairly scrutinized from the beginning. Laura herself has entered politics now in Pennsylvania and seems to do some work with domestic violence organizations, which I do find interesting. And looking at Sean as a person of interest can get confusing because there is so much he said, she said here. Hard to figure out what's actual facts. So let's break it down a little more. First, let's look at the reasons we might think he is not guilty of doing something to Jennifer. She is the mother of their three children. His children stand by him wholeheartedly, as do some family members. Law enforcement has said that they've cleared him as a person of interest. Friends of the Shadles have come forward to confirm that Sean and the children are doing everything they can to search for Jennifer. They are just choosing to stay out of the media. And this would be understandable considering the public response to the case, at least for those that don't know the family personally. There were no sightings of anyone seeing Sean with Jennifer that day at all. In a busy shopping area with multiple sightings of Jennifer, you'd think someone would have seen something. And finally, there was absolutely never any evidence to suggest that Sean did do anything. Now let's look at reasons why he might be guilty. He certainly had a motive, a $5,000 a month motive. And with it being such a nasty divorce, I'm sure tempers were likely running high between both of them. Many have also come forward to say that Sean was abusive to Jennifer, even knocking her tooth out once during a fight. And really, when you break it down, there actually might be more reasons why he is not guilty than guilty. So if Sean Shadel didn't do anything to Jennifer, where is she? Theory number two, foul play at the hands of someone she met or was maybe involved with. Jennifer was living out of a hotel. She met people coming and going all the time. She was a beautiful woman in the midst of a divorce. It wouldn't be unheard of that she'd want to go out and have a good time. And there is evidence that she did just that, at least the couple weeks prior when she went to Don Patron. People did remember seeing her with four men. Four men who have yet to be identified. And that could be completely innocent, but why haven't they come forward to let police know? There are plenty of people she could have come into contact with living out of a hotel. She also walked everywhere she went or took taxis because she didn't have a car. Could someone have seen her walking and picked her up? The weather report for the night she went missing does say that it was raining all evening and into the night. I think while Sean should definitely not be ruled out, I think there could be something else going on here. Who else was she seen hanging out with in those couple of weeks? Was she seeing someone? She could have easily gone back to her hotel and left with someone there without really being seen. And since police didn't really investigate for several weeks, I'm sure any surveillance footage from the hotel is long gone, if there even was any. Jennifer might have been taken out of the area by someone else, someone she was seeing, hanging out with, or possibly had just met at the hotel. Theory number three. 
Jennifer left on her own. Here's the thing. We know she was having a rough time previously. She was going through a nasty divorce. She has a history of alcoholism. She had recently lost her phone and was staying in low-budget hotels while her soon-to-be ex-husband and children were living in their nice suburban neighborhood. Maybe it was just too much for her to bear. When you look at these circumstances, I can see how this might be a woman who would want to run away. But there are other facts that give me pause when it comes to this theory. She had just recently come back to the area because she couldn't stand being away from her kids. Would she once again leave them? And then where would she go? She had no money. Last time when she needed a place to go, she went to her mother's. Where else would she go? She didn't have a car. How would she get there? It was mentioned that when she needed to travel farther distances, she would travel by the mega bus and that there was a bus station at that Walmart, the same Walmart she was seen at on May 15th. Maybe she hopped on a bus somewhere. Maybe she just had a mental break and had to get away. But where would she go? She didn't have any money. And why would she leave and not tell anyone? I'd also think and hope that police would have checked to see if any bus tickets were purchased by Jennifer or if anyone saw her getting on the bus. Jennifer's story really only reached a local audience, so if people were on the bus from out of the area, they wouldn't have necessarily heard about her case. They might not have known she was a missing person. And I suppose this is a possibility, but it's been so many years now, you think she would have shown back up by now, especially for her children. Theory number four, Jennifer had an accident, possibly the night of May 15th, 2014. Had Jennifer possibly fallen back into her drinking habits? She had been at the Don Patron Mexican restaurant a lot lately, it seemed, especially in the evening hours. Had she had too much to drink, wandered off and had an accident somewhere? There are some little patches of woods here and there right near the Walmart shopping plaza and her hotel, but nothing of real significance. But then again, I don't know if any physical searches of the area were ever really even conducted. There aren't any larger bodies of water either, at least that I can see within a mile or two of that Walmart, which might be considered walking distance. Of course, she could have walked much further. And there are many parks, there's state forests, and there's lakes surrounding the state college area, but that would be quite a way for her to walk on foot in the rain. What do you think happened to Jennifer Cahill Shadle? Jennifer is described as a Caucasian woman standing about five foot four inches tall and weighing around 110 pounds when she was last seen on May 15th, 2014. Jennifer has brown hair and blue eyes and often goes by the nickname Jenny. She was wearing a light-colored v-neck t-shirt, capri pants, and black shoes. She was also carrying a black shoulder bag on the day she disappeared, at least according to that Walmart surveillance footage. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Jennifer Cahill Shadel, please contact the Ferguson Police Department at 814-237-237. One one seven two. Just totally frustrating trying to deal. They're going through a divorce. He starts paying her five thousand dollars a month, and all of a sudden she becomes missing. You do not think Jennifer is 
missing. I know I believe Jennifer is no longer with us, and I really felt that from the beginning. There's been a there's been a crime committed here. I I know it, and and it it uh, it needs to be it needs to be uh, answered. Thank you all so much for listening to Jennifer's story today. She's been missing eight years, and there is a family that is completely torn apart by her disappearance. They do believe she is no longer alive, but they still deserve answers. Closure. Please make sure you give us a follow over on social media as we try and share updates as often as we can. Be sure to download the Fetch app and start earning those gift cards. We are going to be traveling in the coming weeks to some of these areas where these people disappeared from to get a better understanding of their cases. If you have any suggestions for us, send me an email or hit us up on social media. We will share that journey and that information with you on social media along the way. And of course, those videos will go up on our YouTube channel. Again, thank you all so much for tuning into our show and helping spread awareness of these unsolved cases. Someone out there knows something. We will be back again next week with another unsolved missing person case. And until then, stay safe and hug your loved ones. 